Alan Cochran. Hello. Did you just press record and play at the same time? That's the old... Uh... <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> did you just go on honeymoon? Not as such. I sort of did, insofar as we got married in July, and then I did the festival, and then we had a sort of a holiday. But we've agreed that it rained so much and wasn't enough fun to then be subsequently described as our honeymoon. So <laughs> we've changed it to the post-Edinburgh holiday that was too rainy and so we may have a honeymoon at some point in the future but to be honest we may not because we did so much of the rest of it a bit unconventionally that it might be quite fun to not have we didn't have a a proposal or a stag do or a hen do or a wedding list or very many guests how did you know you were going to get married I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. How did you know you were going to get married? Uh, we just had a conversation and then went, oh, okay, let's do it. So <laughs> it was one of those, we're not normal, so there's no point in pretending to be normal. <laughs> just for the sake of it, like a lot of weddings, nobody's really enjoying them. Either. In truth, I think actually people are delighted if you don't invite them and then you just tell them afterwards. They go, oh, brilliant, I don't have to come somewhere for a weekend at my own expense and buy you a gift for the privilege and come to a stag or a Hindu and buy you a stag or a Hindu gift. People are delighted to go, really? You've done it? Oh, good. Congratulations. I'll buy you a pint next time I see you. What about your parents, though? Oh, they were there. And they didn't have, you know, you haven't invited Auntie Mabel and Uncle... Didn't invite any aunties. It was literally both families and us, and that was plenty. To be honest, that was too many, but that's just a little joke. If any of them are listening, you were very welcome. But no, it wasn't a honeymoon because it rained too much to then be called a honeymoon. Where we went, did you go? We went to the Lake District and we stayed in this yurt, which is a Mongolian circular tent that has a wood-burning stove and a double bed and a single bed and a little area. It's nice. And uh, it would have been great had the weather been great and I not hadn't been away for a month already. But because I'd been away for a month already and then the weather was pouring down, you just end up going, why am I not at home eating beans on toast off my knee? You know, when you've missed home, that's what you want. You don't want to be in a tent while it's pouring down, do you? So we went home a night early, but now we can't call it a honeymoon. Well, what you could do now is just the next time you have an awesome holiday. Yeah, just chalk it up as one of the honeymoons. Yeah. <laughs> we'll probably have a million honeymoons. Yeah. Uh, some of them separately, who knows? But yeah, any good holiday now is going on the honeymoon list. But there's no point in being too conventional about these things. <laughs> the good thing about being married almost in private is not having to do that thing that so many people do at their wedding of going you're a really good mate I'd love to talk to you for longer but over your shoulder I can see 300 people that I've got to spend two minutes each with we just didn't do that at all if anything we had too much time for our guests uh, my brother's boring me I'm off to bed that was more the thing we hired a huge house in the Lake District and just invited both families and had that for a week it was great that's like all way. the benefits of eloping yeah without the disappointed parents yeah well that was the plan yeah. nice work I recommend it so you did Edinburgh and you're going on this massive tour is it massive I don't it's know if it long. is it's 30 dates which yeah. is you know it's bigger than 20 and smaller than 40 this uh, is your I'm second tour I'm not a real tour. maths expert <laughs> uh, it is my second tour yes how are you with going on tour do you like the travelling and the hotels? I don't mind the tra- The hotels are all right if you stay in them. Sometimes funny things happen. I checked into a hotel room that didn't have a bed in it once and 
and had to go down to reception and complain, my hotel room hasn't got a bed in it. And the woman said, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, I think so. Maybe there was a bed I couldn't see. Which sounds like I was being sarcastic, but I wasn't. Just when she said, are you sure? My, Did you think maybe it was in the my, cupboard? My confidence something? went, and I was thinking, I'm not sure I've checked that room properly. There's probably a waterbed behind the door. It's just me that hasn't spotted it. <laughs> and... And, but I was right, there wasn't a bed, so I just had to get changed room. Did you find out why? No, but I quite like that. I like the fact that there's no closure on the story. <laughs> just it's one of those things that you'll always be able to think about. I wonder what happened to that bed in that hotel. It couldn't be like with the Ryanair that they charged to go to the toilet. Maybe, like, yeah, it's it's extra, cheaper. extra price for a bed, yeah. <laughs> but it was Birmingham, and I, I like the Midlands for that. Just There's an air of everyday eccentricity about the Midlands where just sometimes people are just a bit odd in the street. And it's almost like... They've had years of being ignored because they're not even mentioned in the North-South divide, are they? It's almost like no one's noticed and they can just get away with being slightly mental and nobody's really that bothered. It's like a Shane Meadows film, isn't it? The Midlands is just constantly like that. You just see people wandering around in fishing gear and stuff and just go, Birmingham's weird. I love it. So I quite like being on the road, but it does also mean that you run the risk of becoming a really irascible sort of misanthropic person where you just start hating people, hating drivers because you're on the road so much. Do you drive in between then, you don't? Some of them, and some of them I get trains and uh, I don't think any of them I will walk or cycle. But yeah, I like to mix it up to keep myself interested. Do you do the chatting to strangers on trains thing? If people ask you what you do, do you uh, say I'd it? I probably you... would slightly fudge the issue. But nobody ever asks what you do, do they? I mean, it's never happened to me so far. But I quite like seeing weirdness on trip. There's an awful lot of solitary drinking on trains in the in the UK every now and again you just see someone open a can of booze and you go it's half 11 mate <laughs> it's half 11 and you're in your suit <laughs> but I'm quite looking forward to that aspect and to be honest sometimes I don't make enough time to just listen to albums I like so I'm not bragging but my car has got a 6 CD multi-changer alright I'm bragging a bit and uh I'm actually quite looking forward to the tour of going, oh, I'll be able to take some CDs I like and just sing alone in the car. <laughs> the top of my voice, which there's a certain calibre of singing in the car. That The car and the shower are the two places that we really belt it out, aren't they? I mean, I'm looking now and people are nodding. That's good. Do you sing in the shower? or the? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't actually know I did until an ex told me that I did. An ex afterwards, yeah. like, <laughs> this is the reason. It's all that singing in the shower. <laughs> yeah, so I'm quite looking forward to some albums. I bug out in the car one o'clock in the morning when I'm fed up of various radio stations and babble the incoherent chatter. And then you can flip back and forth between your favourite CDs and people talking rubbish. Does it make you a little bit unhinged when you come back from all that time by yourself? I think it stand-up is almost like, you know, if you were sane in the first place, doing stand-up for a certain number of years would make you a bit unhinged anyway, just because sometimes you're speaking to 400 people and then no one, and then 400 people and then no one. So I think you'd just be mad not to end up mad. I once did a really good show, I thought, and then came out and said goodnight to the staff and they were all just putting chairs away and just went, all right, see ya. And nobody said, well done. And you end up getting in the car going, if I just died for two hours and I don't know it, I've lost my gauge because I thought that was a really good show and no one said well done. But actually, they're quite rightly just putting chairs away and getting ready to go home. They're not worried about my ego. So I think, you know, you could go mad. I think that's why people take support acts, but... I don't really do that because I feel like there would then be a concession where I'd have to go, yeah, what do you want to listen to? When do you want to stop for a sandwich? 
what you want paid as well. A, there's not the budget, and B, I'm not a gracious enough person to travel around the country with. <laughs> so there's no support act or tour manager. It's just me becoming unhinged, as you say. That was the start of this question, wasn't it? Yeah. God, I can talk, can't I? It's good. That's the point of it. Oh, kill me. <laughs> um, you started out, you studied acting, right? Were you yeah. like definitely wanted to be an actor at that point? I'm not sure I did. I think it was just easier than saying I'd like to be a stand-up back then. But that said, if there's any producers or casting directors that would like me to put me in something televisual, it seems like a doddle compared to schlepping up and down the country telling jokes to the disinterested, um, the disinterested of the UK, as I like to call my my fans. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would like to do some TV acting again. There's no point in doing theatre once you've done stand-up because the buzz of stand-up is like crack compared to the buzzer theatre I um, imagine so how did you get into stand up then when was your first gig oh god just do you remember your first gig yes I was 11 and I did a series of impressions that I stole I think from Mike Yarwood at school thing for old people and then I did the same act which was all stolen from Mike Yarwood I think and won a talent competition at Pontins what when you were 11 yeah but I think I knew I was going to win it I had that thing of going well, I'll just do that thing that I nicked off Mike Yarwood and it will be fine <laughs> since then I've become more humble as a performer <laughs> I like to think sometimes too humble but uh, yeah that's brilliant and do you remember at the time feeling like yeah this is yeah and I remember thinking oh, this, this is going to be it It'll be easy from here on in. And now, just 23 years later, here I am. I've reached the dizzy heights of a small studio in XFM. Not quite overnight success, is it? But yeah, I mean, there is a whole chunk in between, but it's not as interesting as that, is it? Well, no, there's interesting bits. The first year you went up to Edinburgh, you got nominated for the Best Newcomer. Yeah, yeah. Was that? It was a lot of years after the 11-year-old debut. (laughs) So, I mean, personally, I felt like the Mike Yarwood stuff was overlooked for Best Newcomer. Nearly made you spit a bit of your drink out there, didn't I? Which is the apex as a performer. To be honest, whenever I do a gig, if someone nearly spits a bit of their drink out, I just want to pack up and go home, because that's that's the reason I want to do stand-up. That is the epitome of a funny joke, isn't it? Like, someone has been surprised. They've thought that they were okay, it was safe to drink, and then you've actually properly surprised them. I'd like the whole audience to just live in fear of sipping a drink. That's the level for me. People just sitting there rigidly going... He's so funny, I don't do anything. That's the dream. So other things, since you did the Perrier nomination thing, you started doing a bunch of telly stuff in that you mm-hmm. did Never Mind the Buzzcocks. Yeah. And when you did it, was it Amstel I did, already? No, was it was it? the dwindling days of Le Mans. Oh. And, uh, oh, wow, he shouted at me for a long time. Did he? What for? Well, he just shouts. That's what just... his thing. He was Mr. Angry and I was Mr. Uh, well, whatever. And it really rattled <laughs> over the course of the night. And I think everybody else, I mean, it was a long record back then. I don't know what it's like now, but he used to take hours and he just shouted and shouted and shouted and I just sat there not bothered and by the end of the recording everyone that was on it was sort of going yeah no one word answers and I was still thinking well this is what I've been told it's like and it is but now I've done a few more of them I quite like them in a way I think they're kind of useful insofar as if someone's seen you at a comedy club or on tour and then they see you on the telly at least they've got the chance of seeing your name at the end and going oh we should go and see him again we liked him did you notice the difference so you did Buzzcocks and you did Have I Got News For You and you've done a bit of 8 Out Of 10 Cats and Mock The Week first of all did you notice the difference in your audience even like at a comedy club where you were one of many on a bill, did you notice people? Oh, I think if you're on in quick succession, if you do three things in ten weeks or something like that, you might have people nudge and wonder why they know you. But 
in the street outside of comedy clubs I'm not really at that level where people know why they know me like occasionally they might nod at me as if they know me and then they get 10 steps further on and kind of realize that they don't and also it doesn't help that I look a bit like the bloke off the BT internet adverts so people are <laughs> people are trying to wonder if I'm him or if I'm me and uh, I'd quite like to move up to the next level where they just go oh that's him I either like him or I don't I don't even want their adulation I just quite like them to know why they know me but it's really weird because people kind of have this weird absurd version of you that they impose after the first time I did eight out of ten cats I was half asleep on the back of a London bus and two youth that it turned out later were off to university at Brunel or something like that and they spotted me and came up and were right in my personal space going where do I know you from man where do I you've been on eight out of ten cats in it and I went yeah yeah and they went what are you doing on the bus man <laughs> as if you've been on eight out of ten cats that will give you riches beyond our wildest dreams you will never travel by public transport again and I wish I'd answered I'm keeping it real lads but actually I gave them the truth which is my natural instinct I said, oh, my Vespa's got a flat tyre, which isn't as rock and roll at all, is it? What was their reaction? They just looked a bit like, oh, right, we thought you lived like some kind of West Coast rapper now that you've been on 8 out of 10 cats <laughs> once at that point. <laughs> but I don't think it... In my general life, when I'm walking around South Manchester pushing a buggy or going to the post office to get your car tax no one's really expected to see a comedian in the street or in the post office or anything so people just wander past you and i've done the same i live near people that are relatively famous there's people from elbow and i am clute live around the corner from me and every time i've seen them i've kind of walked past them and gone oh he's walking his dogs or whatever and you kind of go yeah people are normal eight out of ten cats and mock the week between the two of them mock the week has kind of been a bit of a bigger deal eight out of ten cats always looks like it's more fun to do in the 8 out of 10 cats always looks a bit more like... It's fun. Like, sort of... Whereas Mock the Week looks like well, seven looks... egos shouting over each <laughs> yeah, other. Basically, I can't imagine yeah. what would give you that impression. <laughs> and next... <laughs> I think Mock the Week is, yes, a little more aggressive. I find interrupting other human beings quite difficult, and so it may be that... The truth is I'm too polite for panel games. Did it force you into it? Did you get a bit like... No, I've just not got that competitive a streak. I just end up thinking, oh, well, I'll just sit here till they ask me a direct question and then I'll say something funny. And uh, if they don't, I'll just go home and, you know, I'll end up appearing on it having smiled every now and again, which I've not seen the edit of the last one I did. That may well be the case. But, but, you know, they're all fine. The big thing that you've done in that it seems to be a programme which is having a big effect in terms of audiences of certain comedians is the Michael McIntyre show. Yeah, that the that's Comedy something... Roadshow was really good insofar as that unlike perhaps a panel game, you get the chance to go on and do what you do really well up and down the country for the rest of the year. And uh, I really enjoyed the gig that I did on the night. And I... it seemed to go brilliantly. Up yeah, the storm, yeah well, people have been really positive about it. And, and to a certain extent, <laughs> again, there's a slightly weird level of recognition from that. So to a tiny fraction of the population, I am that peach guy. Because I told a story about someone eating a peach on a train on it. Like somebody gave me a peach after a gig in Edinburgh. Just, no way! Yeah, just That's me amazing. A... That's yeah. like Kate Nash getting lemons thrown out. I'll tell you what, if I could go back on the telly and tell other fruit stories I might I might never have to buy fresh fruit again in my life which would be you know pretty cool wouldn't it I should really tell some stories about better stuff than fruit yeah I was in my Bentley the other day <laughs> I wouldn't really want a Bentley too juicy <laughs> I need a lower MPG like a Scores or Octavia 1.9 TDI if Scores are listening that would be great 
or a superb, I don't mind. But yeah, the comedy roadshow thing was really good. People suddenly go, oh, that guy that's sometimes on panel games being polite and occasionally funny is really funny when he does stand-up, which is the big secret of my career at the moment. There seems to be more and more programmes like this that are managing to be successful, like Michael McIntyre and Stuart Lee as well. Do you notice a difference in audiences in general? Do you notice more people coming who aren't necessarily just really into comedy, but just kind of people going? This, I think, well, yeah. maybe stand-up's in a sort of a weird situation where it kind of feels like the general public, not that that's... A, great phrase but it feels like they're realising that there's loads of good stand-ups that aren't on the telly very often at the moment and they've sort of stumbled on us and it's becoming I suppose more mainstream in that normal people are realising we're good and that it's not just you know some guy in a a suit jacket and jeans shouting about Thatcher anymore and so that's kind of it's an interesting time in that there's loads of stand-ups that can easily entertain people for two hours that aren't on the telly and you kind of go well that's a good thing and kind of feel like there's a certain element of it where people are disappointed by other strands of the arts you know they've been let down by blockbuster films and populist books and rubbish theatre and they kind of go oh this lot seem to be doing stuff that's consistently good. Perhaps we should just keep going. So that's a nice thing at the moment about stand-up. But is it a different kind of audience as well uh, in terms of what I'm they, not, how I'm they really react? I'm not sure, but it seems to be the case. When you look at the listings for comedy, there's loads of people on tour and I can't imagine that they're all going on tour and playing empty houses. It seems like folk are going out. And also the world needs cheering up at the moment as well, doesn't it? So there's never been a better time to kind of go, hey, forget your troubles and laugh at me talking rubbish for a while. Comedy's always done well in uh, in recessions, I think. You know, when people are glum, they go out and get cheered up. Edinburgh Festival this year seemed to be a really good example of that. Yeah. It was the busiest it's been for... Yeah, I think it could be a good time to have spent years becoming an unknown but good jester. This is the perfect time for us. There's a perfect storm has been created for Alan Cochran's career. <laughs> Certainly for Michael McIntyre's, that's for sure. So is this show that you're just about to take on tour, is it the one that you did in Edinburgh this year? Yes, but longer and with an interval and probably even more daydreaming. And, and so it's called... Alan Cochran is a daydreamer at night. And what's the premise? It's really just about life, but actually it's me pretending it's not about life at all. It's me going, oh yeah, just look out the window and think stupid stuff. But I've always liked stand-up that is about life, so it's literally about anything that I think is funny or that has happened to me that is funny. It all just goes in. So it's not like, you know, some comics, they make it a puzzle where you kind of sit there going, oh, God, I'm not sure if I get this. Why is everyone else laughing? I'm not that kind of comic. I just I talk about people's faces and driving and babies and the news and just anything that I think is funny. Crisps. And are you a big daydreamer? Oh, yeah, massive. Yeah, literally huge. I wasted a whole day recently just daydreaming that I owned a barge, and I don't. And also I realised about two-thirds of the way through the day that I'm six foot three, and a barge might not be a great thing for me to own. And I caught myself going back and airbrushing my daydream so that I had a higher roof on the boat. So that's the sort of thing that is... I mean, that's not in the show, but now that you're laughing, I'm thinking maybe I should put that in the show next time I do it. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask, because I'm quite a daydreamer, Mm -hmm. and I find there has to be some sort of basis in reality. Right. In that it has to be kind of conceivable in that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm not particularly surreal. I just... I mean, it does get a bit daft, but then again, I suppose any art students that are listening will know that surreal began as super real, and that's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be ultra-vivid and weird. I wanted to ask... Based on my own daydreaming experience. Tell me. Two things. 
One is, because I have... So you know how you have like a recurring dream? Yeah. Do you have any recurring daydreams? I own this barge that's got a really high roof. <laughs> uh, no, not the Does... moment. But actually, uh, yeah, probably. I'm a ninja in a lot of them. Okay. Uh, wreaking havoc on people that have wronged me, <laughs> including people that have tried to step onto a tube as I'm stepping off it. Come on, you know the rules. Don't make me get my skills out. A lot of violent fantasies. Lots of them. <laughs> even though I'm quite a placid soul, really, but lots of violent fantasies. And, uh, yeah, just... Well, the good thing about a good daydream is that you don't actually have to be asleep to do it. Like, the sad thing about really good dreams is that you might not have it again, whereas a good daydream, you can just sort of put it in a file and revisit it, can't you? Yeah. (laughs) Next time you're painting a wall, go, oh, that was a good day, what I had before, about the barge. I think I'll do that again. (laughs) Then the other question, which is kind of related in my head, I'll explain why, but is is about whether you have them that ever affect your day-to-day life. Because one of my recurring daydreams, I've... It sort of started as an occasional daydream and then from a couple of things that I watched on telly and a book I read, it's it's become more prominent. But it's zombie Armageddon, as in there's zombie Armageddon, most people are dead, we've got to hide somewhere in a safe house. Right. I decided once with when the security guards here that XFMHQ would be a good safe house because there's a lot of fire doors. Yeah. And I've started doing a thing recently <laughs> where... I judge people based on whether if it was zombie Armageddon and they were in the safe house and I was outside bashing on the door, would they let me in or not? if it like potentially compromised their safety and it's kind of and it's not really to do with your relationship with that person it's sort of just to do with what kind of a person they are so this is how you're judging new people or people you already know well i went through a bunch of people i know and what i found interesting about it was that there were some people who i get on quite well with but i thought you know what if push came to shove i don't know if you'd come through and then there was other yeah. people who i have nothing in common with but i thought i really think that you just come and i like those people a lot more now. it's a massive hypothetical situation <laughs> to run through. I probably have a really truncated version of that, of thinking, who gets their round in? And in that way, do they become my friend or not? Right. <laughs> but you've gone for a really convoluted way of deciding whether or not you like a person but involved in zombie was, arc- I think that was more to do with having recurring daydreams. Oh, right, yeah. And I that was an the zombie trouble. Anyway, so recurring daydreams, maybe? Well, I'll think about it and see if I can pop it into the show, which uh, starts on the 25th of September. So, 25th of September. On alancochran.com. Can we tell them how to spell my name? Because if not, people go to the wrong A-L-U-N-C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. And that has all the dates. It starts on the 25th of September in Cambridge up to the 14th of November in Salford. Is that your hometown? That's the one I could walk to, if anything. Yeah. That would be one of the home gigs. Okay, and all of those are up online at alancochran.com. Thank -hmm. you very much for coming in. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.